If you or someone you know is an angsty feminist like me, and they literally want to wear their feminism on their sleeve, then you have got to check out Feminist Trash Store. Feminist Trash is founded on the belief that intersectional feminism and sustainability go hand in hand. They specialize in size-inclusive unisex apparel with hand-lettered designs by artist and founder Joanna. Each t-shirt is printed with biodegradable water-based ink and carefully made to order to minimize waste and ethically reduce any environmental impact. Their eco-friendly and 100% vegan t-shirts are designed to embody the meaningful conversations feminists are having in pursuit of a more empathetic and inclusive future. They want people expressing themselves in the ways that feel most sincere to them, without the perpetual silencing of preconceived racial stereotypes, sexual rigidity, and body shaming. Feminist Trash is committed to increase visibility for intersectional feminism. They're leveraging the power of community and sustainable fashion practices to mobilize a growing platform of diverse voices of intersectional feminist artists and independent feminist media creators from around the world. At Feminist Trash, they are committed to feminism that centers intersectionality, mutual aid, and actively pushes back against patriarchal, white supremacist oppression. That's why they've created Mutual Aid Mondays, where every Monday their profits will be distributed to a different mutual aid or community organization that upholds feminist, anti-racist, and queer inclusionary foundations. They source products and fabrics from ethical brands and suppliers who comply to labor, environmental, and safety standards. Go to FeministTrash.com and enter code KellyShopa, that's K-E-L-L-Y-S-H-O-P-P-A, at checkout to receive 20% off your order and start wearing your feminism on your sleeve. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Empowered Authenticity, the podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Shopa, and I have some news. This will be the last episode of Empowered Authenticity, the podcast, at least for a while. Uh, I want to go on a hiatus so that way I can explore some other interests of mine and work on some other projects that I'm passionate about. You know, I I really love this podcast. I love talking with so many different people about a variety of things. Like, it's really, it's like a selfish pleasure that I also get to share with everybody. Um, so I love it. And it also takes a lot of time for me to edit the episodes and publish them and, and to find people to be on the podcast. And, you know, it's, it's absolutely worth it. And I recognize that my time is limited. And so I want to try some different, some different things. And I'm hopeful that I'll find my way back to podcasting and continuing to have these fantastic conversations uh, right now, I just don't have the capacity to do everything. So I, of course, want to thank everybody who's been listening and everybody who has been a guest, um, everybody who's recommended it to their friends. Just, I am so incredibly grateful. I'm super grateful for everybody that I've connected with and everybody who supported me. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully it will be just a, just a little break. And then I'll come back. Um, but keep following the Instagram account. I'll continue to be posting all kinds of good stuff there. And, uh, you know, spreading that love, spreading that info. But this week's guests are absolutely phenomenal. And I'm so excited. So our guests today 
are Katie Weber and Jules Edwards. Together, they work on Women and ADHD, which is a community where women who are diagnosed with ADHD or suspect that they have ADHD can come together as a community and share their experiences and learn from each other, uh, which is so powerful because, you know, as you'll learn about later in this episode, women are often underdiagnosed, undiagnosed, underdiagnosed, misdiagnosed. Um, And so many of us don't get diagnosed until we're well into adulthood, which is um, exactly what happened with Jules and Katie. So we just live our lives thinking that, you know, we're just... (laughs) We, we just can't do it. Like, we're just bad at being human, uh, which I can very much relate to. And so th- having community and ha- having podcasts like Katie's, um, the Women in ADHD podcast, we need this because, you know, most often we go in and we and we say oh well we think we might have something and we're told oh your grades are too good or you're able to sit still or whatever and um Jules does a really great job of explaining why that is and so I'm so excited for everybody to hear all about that I don't want to hold up this train any longer so everybody please give a very large warm hefty welcome to Katie Weber and Jules Edwards well, welcome, Katie and Jules. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, well, thanks for having us. We're excited. Yeah, thank you. Of course. So if you wouldn't mind, can you uh, each tell us a little bit about yourselves? Um, whoever wants to go first. <laughs> All right. Hi. Uh, yeah, so my name is Katie Weber, and I have been a, a life coach for several years. I'm an, an author and a speaker and a um, uh, now a podcast host. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the beginning of the pandemic when I felt like my life was imploding, like I think many middle-aged women who had kids at home and their spouse at home. And um, yeah, just felt sort of like I had this house of cards that blew off the table and kind of really started looking into it. My therapist had ADHD. And so she was the one who had been gently suggesting to me for a couple years that I look into it. And I was always like, I don't know what you're talking about. I am not hyper. Um, I think I have bipolar. Uh, <laughs> that was my, you know, cause I, I sort of recognized this idea that I had this manic interest, um, in some things, but then I, you know, could also spend days lying on the couch, staring out the window. So that was kind of how I viewed myself. But once, uh, the pandemic hit, she was like, you really should look into this. And, and that was when I took a self-test that was specifically for women, uh, the Sari Solden self-test at attitudemagazine.com. I aced it. And, um, which, uh, you know, and that was kind of got the ball rolling. I, you know, got a diagnosis, um, from my, from my physician who is a, a psych NP and yeah. And then I was like really bored at home and kind of really had this profound experience of looking over my entire life through this new lens. And, um, I wanted to know if other women who were diagnosed in adulthood were having a similar experience to me uh, because it just felt so difficult to articulate to other people. And yet it felt so incredibly profound. Uh, So I was like, how do I interview people without just sort of randomly calling them up? And and I thought, I'll start a podcast. So I started the podcast in December of 2020. 
And, you know, very quickly, it sort of became uh, my life, really. Uh, I was learning so much about myself and ADHD and what it looks like in women and understanding how, how misunderstood it is and how many stereotypes there and how stigmatized it was. And, um, you know, just couldn't get enough of listening to other women and hearing our stories and realizing that so much of my own treatment and understanding about myself and my ADHD was coming through these podcast conversations. And so, um, you know, it, it just kind of snowballed from there. I realized I was meeting all of these incredible women, but I wanted them to all meet each other because I also was, you know, realizing how much conversation and shared lived experience is part of how we treat our ADHD and how we, you know, we're not learning about our ADHD through going and, you know, going to stodgy websites and reading medical reviews. You know, we're, we're not reading about it in the DSM. We're learning about our ADHD by talking about shared experiences and some of the shame around behaviors and, and some of these sort of brain-based executive function issues and and all of that. So, so, uh, that's who I am. I now coach women with ADHD, um, either individually or in groups as we kind of, um, you know, change our narrative of who we are and, and, you know, go from looking at ourselves often as women who are lazy or, you know, de depressed. Many of us are misdiagnosed with depression and anxiety. And so, you know, it's really about like understanding who we are through this new framework of how our brain works. It's really, it's really quite amazing. Yeah. So, um, well, I'm Jules Edwards, Julia Edwards. I'm actually a mental health therapist um, here in the state of Iowa. And my primary focus is on adults. My ADHD diagnosis just kind of has, it's split in like two chunks. I was diagnosed officially, I guess, air quotes here in college because I did get an official diagnosis and medication, but that experience to me was like very, nobody educated me on what that was. I've um, been in the States for almost 13 years as an international student. So I'm originally from El Salvador um, in Central America. So I was born and raised there. And I think kind of what led me to that path was like my academic experience was just awful. I was not one of those bright people with great grades. Like I struggled in school and it just never felt like I fit in. My way of learning was probably completely different and nobody, you know, just like the schools because of the lack of education and knowledge, they just really don't encourage you to, you know, explore what ways or, you know, which methods would work best for you to learn. And learning about the ADHD nervous system, like I probably was not interested in half of the classes that were offered, so I was bored. But again, I was not like very externally hyperactive. So that kind of went unnoticed. And I was also an athlete and a competitive swimmer since the age of six or seven. So that was kind of keeping me in like in a very steady mood and focused and grounded. So that helped a lot too. And it wasn't until I got to college after losing my structure of being in a very demanding school and high school and everything. And then college is just like, here's all this freedom and no accountability. And that's kind of when things just spiral down, even though I was studying what I liked and, you know, I wanted to study psychology and I knew that for a very, from a very early age. And it was just like, it was awful. After my first year, I went back to a therapist I was, you know, seeing back home and she referred me to a psychiatrist. And then the psychiatrist just kind of gave me like a very quick questionnaire. And I remember leaving 
his office with a prescription for Ritalin with the feedback of this is going to help you focus a little bit and then just your grades will improve. So nothing about the brain, nothing about the social aspect, the emotional dysregulation. Like, so I took the medication for six months. I continued to procrastinate in college because I would procrastinate to the point of pain and anxiety and just sleep deprivation. So that ADHD tax gets higher and higher, the less you know about it. So I continued to procrastinate, would only take the medication when I was going to pull an all-nighter or study and just, you know, probably the dose was not right. I don't remember what kind of Ritalin it was. I just did not continue it. Then when I moved to Iowa to do my master's, things were just kind of, you know, it always felt like it was just survival and hanging by a thread. But it wasn't until last year but it's, it's always a certain type of loss of structure that I've learned, I guess, in my experience as a therapist and talking to people that pushes you, you know, because the pandemic was an incredible loss of structure. And that's why a lot of diagnoses have emerged from that. And for me, it was, you know, being an athlete and having done sports my whole life, I was running, I was a runner. I mean, I still I am, but I got injured last year. And that injury just kind of limited me. I was on crutches for a while. And that loss right there was what kind of like I went through the spiral down of looking my mood shift so significantly. So I was going through depression, anxiety, a lot of the things that I was already battling with because I didn't know, I didn't have the education or the experience exploring this myself, just the textbook knowledge of ADHD. So that led me to talk to my psychiatrist at the time. And, you know, like, I, I want to get tested because I, I think I'm ready to try medication and just kind of go from there after I received my official diagnosis so I could try some medication. I just kind of like dove in and started learning and just absorbing and immersing myself in that. Of course, like the grief that you experience after you get a diagnosis is pretty significant. So navigating all of that. And then I found Katie's podcast and that podcast was what just it made me feel so validated because then you hear all these women, you know, sharing these experiences like, oh, my God, it's not just me. <laughs> there are words for this. Other people experiences. So I joined the community as well. And that's kind of like how the two of us met. And it was just been, you know, kind of like working towards having that sense of connection and community with other people, because I feel like that is one of the most important aspects you know, to feel not to feel alone and isolated, but you feel connected and understood. So, yeah. 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 And I, I agree 100%, you know, hearing, hearing both of your stories and seeing, you know, accounts on Instagram like yours and people are like, oh, this is ADHD or like, this is my experience. And I'm like, oh my God, I just thought I was like coconuts, like, <laughs> which like, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, a little bit, but also like, oh my gosh, like there's something you can do to like be able to, to help it. Mm -hmm. um, and there are ways to work with it. And so that was, it, it's almost like a lifeline. I feel, mm -hmm. um, Katie, you used a phrase that I want to, that I want to ask about. Um, and that was executive, um, executive functioning. And so a lot of ADHDers struggle with executive functioning. What does that mean? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, I don't know what the actual definition of executive function is. 
um, and, you know, from a medical standpoint, but really it's sort of the ability to kind of follow through with tasks and task management. And, um, you know, as I think that uh, it's, you know, it's, it's really about kind of getting from point A to point B in a seamless manner. And for many of us, we are, our brains just operate in a different way. So just getting from point A to point B is not that easy. We need to sort of find the proper motivation and we need to, we're interest driven. Uh, so uh, there's ways in which there are certain tasks that we you get kind of walls go up if they are incredibly boring or if they don't seem like they have a lot of logic to them or, you know, and, and so that's where we have a lot of issues, especially as women with like domesticity, right? <laughs> like a lot of sort of domestic tasks feel pointless. Doing the dishes feels pointless if they're just going to get dirty again. And if you just mm -hmm. feel like you're in these hamster wheels, right? Why fold the laundry if it's just going to get worn and back in the laundry? Like, you know, these sort of these tasks that you understand need to be done, but you mm -hmm. just can't bring yourself to do them. And so I think executive function, and when we talk about executive function versus executive dysfunction, it's really just like the ability to get shit done. Uh, and what is neat, like you said, like once you kind of understand what is in the way and you're not just sort of defaulting to this idea of like, oh, I'm such a failure. Oh, I'm so lazy. Oh, what's wrong with me? Once you understand that there's like a method to get from A to B and it's not gonna be straightforward, and it's not going to look like it does for a lot of other people. You can then you can kind of look at like, okay, so what do I need to get there? And sometimes you don't need to get there. You know, that's the other thing. Is sometimes I think we feel like we need to do things that we don't necessarily do. So that's another thing we work on a lot, which is like, am I doing this because I genuinely need to get this done, or am I doing this because I feel like I should be the person who does this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you for that explanation. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I should have like an actual definition of executive function on hand though. Um, so I don't well, know. If I'm I, like if I... more <laughs> in tune with that since like, I'm like, sometimes I'm in my nerdy therapist brain the whole time because I have to educate, you know, people and I've, you know, and like the clinic and stuff like that. So I share a lot about, but basically the way that I see it, like our executive function center of the brain is just right here on our prefrontal cortex. And it's the part of our brain that is in charge of like, it's our mental and cognitive abilities that allows us to, or motivates us to do planning, organizing, time management, you know, it's self-awareness, it's inhibition, it's emotional regulation. So it's basically that part of your brain that helps you regulate and not be in the two extremes, right? And ADHD, we tend to be on the two extremes. It's like all or nothing in a lot of ways, right? Am I, whether overstimulated or understimulated, I'm like incredibly emotional hyperarousal is up here or after being there too much and I'm completely shut down and I'm experiencing emotional hyperarousal, which is like that almost feeling numb state. So we tend to kind of be like a light switch. So yes. executive dysfunction, I guess like another way to see it is the executive function part of the brain is what allows people to see like, some people are better at some things than others. That's for everyone. But I think for people with ADHD, it just presents like this, like more of a challenge because the things that we struggle with are just more significant because our nervous system is interest-based. So we require different, I guess, little check boxes to see if we're gonna get a task done 
it has to meet certain, you know, some of those requirements to do it. But yeah, it's kind of like simplified, but complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is complicated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you were saying, Katie, it's like, and Jules, like, it's so different for everybody what's actually going to help and, and mm -hmm. help us to function better. And, you know, as as I continue to learn about ADHD, I see how it presents as so many other things like OCD, perfectionism, mm -hmm. uh, anxiety, depression. I, I see all of these different things. Um, and so I'm curious, Jules, how did you kind of kind of like let yourself ask the question? Because I think so many of us, uh, as, I mean, we're great at gaslighting ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Like I am so good at gaslighting myself and being like, yeah. oh, you are just lazy or, you know, you just don't want to do this or you're just a failure. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I think it becomes very hard then to seek the help that we need. So how did you get to that point, Jules, where you were like, I need help? Yeah. And I think with the ADHD specifically, um, I've always been open to therapy and just, it's more about like self-discovery, but in, in some of these struggles, I feel like there were several components that just kind of put that little seed in my head. And it was, you know, the procrastination was so significant, you know, so what I was experiencing was a lot of anxiety and depression, but it was like more of a symptom. I never saw or felt like depression was a core problem. So then I started kind of putting together because when I started kind of like examining my own patterns and it's like, why do I procrastinate so much? Like, why do I have to wait until the last minute? But then we have like this fantasy, an idea of like getting things done is what's stimulating. So we get excited. Like, I'm going to organize all of this and get a planner and that planner never gets looked at. And it's just, and with work, I realized I would, I was loving doing some things. And that was with the latest diagnosis, right? In my previous job, I would love the time with my clients. I was working as a substance abuse counselor and as a therapist as well in another agency. So I love the one-on-one -on -one. and then the paperwork was just, oh my goodness. That was my greatest, you know, just like my Achilles heel, whatever you want to call it. But I would have a pile of paperwork that was so hard to get done. And I would just stare at it and not do anything. I would just look at it like, why is my body not moving? And instead of starting to do the paperwork, I would probably watch a show on my phone or do something else, you know, because I just couldn't find myself to do it. And boredom was even painful. Or if I was bored, I realized maybe I'd just fall asleep. So it was very significant. And that's what led to the depression is that I was feeling so unfulfilled and like that deep sense of failure that like, why do I keep doing this? So it's like a lot of core shame that comes along with the ADHD is the guilt. Why can I stick to this workout program the whole time? Like, then I realized like, oh, it's just, it gets bored after three weeks. I need variety. I need something that interests me. But then the anxiety was that too. It's like in the morning with the hyperactivity, because I'm always rushing and it was time blindness was another thing that to me, it was incredible to learn more about that concept because it seemed like I always either had a bunch of time or I thought I had a bunch of time. Somehow I'm arriving 10 minutes late or leaving the house like 15 minutes like before I have to be there. And I know it's a 20 minute drive, but there's this part of me that still believes that I'm going to make it without a ticket probably. Like, oh, it's not going <laughs> to happen. But it is, it was 
those two things and then the organization and difficulty making decisions for me because why can i just make a simple choice that even picking a movie sometimes or like a show to watch when i was living by myself was just like oh maybe i had the idea of relaxing that would spend like 30 minutes looking for something and that's the perfectionism like it has to be you know and I could never decide. And I will go back to just watching the same show that I've watched like a million times because I would get frustrated. Then the day goes by and it's that it's a combination of disappointment and unfulfillment. And that's what leads, at least to me, it led me to like that depression state. So when I talked to my psychiatrist, like, you know, I think this is what's going on. You know, I had a really more knowledge about ADHD. And it's like, I think I'm depressed and anxious because ADHD is a problem. I'm procrastinating too much. I'm experiencing this. And then I think the result has been that I'm depressed and anxious because I try medication for depression. It just didn't do anything for me. So that's kind of what led, you know, him to refer me to a, a psychologist to do like ADHD testing. But I was already immersed myself more in like that, the emotional dysregulation, you know, just kind of being super sensitive to things, but that was before I even discovered the sensory sensitivities that I had, that I had no clue that that's what it was. I was just experiencing anxiety. I hate it like crowded places and the loud noises, but you don't say anything because you don't have the language and the vocabulary to explain your experience. So yeah. that leads to depression too. You feel lonely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, you might as well have just been like narrating my entire life. Um <laughs> Yeah, what seems to happen when we share experiences, right? It's incredible. It's one of those things where it's like it sucks that you know we've had to experience this, and also it's extremely validating to know that you're not alone, mm -hmm. which I, I think yeah. is why it's so important that we're talking about this. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, as we learn more about ADHD, we've learned that there tends to be a difference in how it presents in males and in females. Um, mm -hmm. Can you explain some of those differences? In a very like basic manner, yes, there are differences because the male and female brain structures are already different. But I think um, just statistically, ADHD in boys and men tends to present more externally. So there's a tendency to for symptoms to be shown as more hyperactivity and impulsivity. So if we go to the boys in schools, you'll see that disruptive kid either interrupting, you know, or just kind of being disrupted in the classroom or, you know, just like that, a lot of energy and people always mentions that it's like, oh, it just gets running up and down and that's the actual hyperactivity. So that is what makes that be seen. It's like very visible behaviors, but for women, the majority experiences that internally. So it's women tend to be diagnosed more with an inattentive type of ADHD or combined type but it's more of the distractibility and the hyperactivity can be more of like that intrusive thinking, like overthinking intrusive thoughts. But then you're going to be in the classroom and instead of interrupting it, you're just going to be looking at the birds outside and just, you know, getting distracted by those little things. And, but the symptoms are the same. Just, just presenting it in a very, very different way. Visible yeah. versus invisible, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think too, that some of it comes from like how, how uh females are conditioned in our society versus mm -hmm. males right like we we're told like how to be a lady and you know i agree in terms of the you know a lot of a lot of the differences as we grow up 
come to socialization, right? Why I think it's so interesting mm -hmm. to have that conversation about like what is gender-based versus what is sociologically based, right? Because the, there mm -hmm. are a lot of expectations placed on women to be likable and be polite and be small. And, you know, it's why so many of us are, you know, why so many girls are overlooked because they don't misbehave so much. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's diagnosis of children usually comes from the teacher who is annoyed by the behavior of the child. And, and so, you know, boys tend to be physically hyperactive and that's annoying to the teacher. And so the teacher mm -hmm. says, you need to fix this child. Whereas a lot of the sort of behaviors that are exhibited in girls are thought of, even if they are annoying for the teacher, the teacher's like, it's more, they're viewed as character flaws more mm -hmm. than they are, let's help this child. And that I think is also like, a soci you know, the ways in which mm -hmm. we are sort of divided yeah. by gender in terms of, you know, what is something that you, you know, let's help you as a society versus you need to get your act together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you get that idea of we, we internalize this sense of shame, right? Which is like, what's wrong with me that I can't do this. And so then we grow up and then it's like, all of a sudden we're like adults who have all of these responsibilities and then you end up in a partnership. And so then you're, you know, value, you, mm -hmm. then you're looking at like, what are the duties of the household that are falling to women versus what are the duties that fall to men or what, you know, even in same-sex partnerships, like, you know, mm -hmm. you, you have to kind of think about like, okay, what are traditionally a lot of the, you know, calendar management and executive function stuff falls to women. And so, again, you know, that's why I'm always questioning, like, am, you know, do I have ADHD or am I just like a really angry feminist? <laughs> because it does feel like a lot of this stuff I'm like would I be dealing with these issues if I had been socialized as a male I don't know you know it's a fascinating question and conversation for me but like but then mm -hmm. on the flip side you bring in estrogen and hormones and how estrogen yeah. affects our our working memory and like a lot of the things that we deal with and you sort of look at these peaks and valleys of our of you know when ADHD feels like we're more of a sort of chaotic hot mess mm -hmm. and it's usually in peaks in estrogen and so there's all you know mm -hmm. that's a whole other interesting uh area of study that is nobody wants to touch with a 10-foot pole right. <laughs> because researchers don't like to study women so that's another mm -hmm. issue so yeah it is fascinating to sort of think about how how it differs mm -hmm. based uh you know in men and women mm -hmm. and why yeah. I just did an interview actually, like there's an article on Psych Central um, that is ADHD, you know, and how it presents in women and men. And it's already out, like it's been published. So like I did talk a lot about, you know, the things that Katie's mentioning too, like with hormones, because the estrogen for women, it has an interaction with dopamine, you know. So a lot of women, like I see that very significantly then on days where I know estrogen is low, which is either prior to your menstrual cycle, when it starts, it's like that PMS time. It's like, if I'm on medication, it's like, I'm not taking any medication at all. The symptoms just exacerbate. And then when, for some women, when, when estrogen is like at a certain time, like you feel better. So you start kind of like seeing the roles in hormones. So when adult women are seeking for a diagnosis, there's so many hoops to jump through. There's so many other things that we have to take into account you know, to actually determine a diagnosis because like, well, if we're prescribing stimulants, we have to take into account, like, are there any other comorbidities or coexisting conditions to make sure that you can take stimulants safely? But it's the lack of education to providers and from providers to people that I think just poses like a lot of limitations, you know, because the symptom 
the core symptoms can be the same, but just because it presents in both, you know, men and women like very differently. And also it's like the cultural bias and the gender bias. You know, I come from, I am Latino, right? Like the expectations for Latino women in Latino countries are very different than what they are here. But we're still dealing a lot with the superwoman syndrome that we have to be able to manage parenthood, like school responsibilities, social responsibilities, your work, and, uh, and still look great at it. You know, you have to look flawless and perfect. God forbid if you have a meltdown somewhere. God forbid if you show your emotions. And, you know, so it's, it's a lot of expectations from society. And I think for men as well. Men have that, you know, like don't show your emotions because that shows weakness. So then men also experience the rejection sensitive dysphoria and those insecurities, but how it may present for a lot of men can be aggression, anger, narcissism, even, you know, so it's interesting that how RSD can like some, a person can be in narcissistic tendencies or the other person can have a lot of people pleasing tendencies because the goal is to avoid the feeling of criticism and rejection. That's so interesting. Like growing Mm -hmm. up, I was a huge people pleaser. um, And Mm -hmm. it's something that I continue to work on. Um, And it's kind of fascinating because my brother was diagnosed with ADHD and he's six years younger than me. um, And he had a lot of the aggression. And so that was really what what drove them to be like, Mm -hmm. oh, we should probably figure this out. But, you know, I'm a people pleaser. I stay quiet and like I just want to be invisible. And so, yeah, then nobody thinks, like, we should probably check in on this. Like, the squeaky Mm -hmm. wheel gets the grease, right? Um, But I'm curious. So it seems like even now, there are a lot of people who think that ADHD isn't a legitimate thing. They think that Mm -hmm. it's just, you know, you can't focus or you're lazy or you are all Mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z. What what is it that has perpetuated that thought in so many people and how can we work to to overcome that? First thing that comes to mind is to be fitting into these myths is I always go back to the lack of education, lack of knowledge, you know, like updated research, of course, is important, which there has been a lot in the last, you know, few years, even the last decade. But it's because I'm going to reference the ADHD iceberg here because that's an analogy that I absolutely love and it helps people understand, you know, ADHD as a whole, you know, because the the iceberg analogy is something I use for other stuff too, but it is, you know, the tip of the iceberg are the things that you see. Those are the behaviors that you see, which can be the hyperactivity, the impulsivity, you know, for some kids is the actual physical one running up and down hyperactivity for other people can be road rage and you're displaying that anger, impulsivity, a lot of different things, but it's behavior. What you don't see is the internal experience that is driving that behavior upward. So there's an internal experience, there's emotional struggles, there's, you know, shame and guilt and who can explain time blindness? Time blindness can lead to that frustration, hyperactivity that you see because you're rushing. So then you're like the Tasmanian devil. That's why I refer to myself in the morning as just like a tornado that is just like going everywhere. Right. But you can explain that choice paralysis, the inability to make a decision or prioritize. 
because that's all of the executive functioning stuff like that ADHD holds, you know, it's a regulation problem. It's not a deficit. We don't have a deficit of attention or focus. We just have problems staying in that middle lane. Like I said, it's regulation. We can hyper-focus on something that interests us all day. But then if it's not interesting, then we can't. But what happens in the one extreme, if you're hyper-focusing, you're probably going to forget to eat, drink water, go to the bathroom until your body has an extreme reaction. It's like, hey, you haven't drank water all day, right? So there's so much that is unseen. And that lack of knowledge of that emotional aspect of it, right? Like those internal experiences, emotional hyperarousal, that is what people don't I'm not too familiar with. So they immediately associate it with like, well, you're an adult also. Like the you're gonna grow out of it, your kid's gonna grow out of it. You know, and I still hear professionals like talk in those terms and it's it's a little scary and it can be invalidating for people. Yeah. You know, so thinking that you're gonna grow out of it is one because you don't the good grades is another one. Oh, but you have a PhD, so like you can have ADHD because that meant that you focused in school just fine. <laughs> It's not what it is at all, right? Yeah, somebody can be a Harvard graduate, like they can graduate with honors. I mean, Bill Gates is a great example, I feel like, you know? But once you understand, I guess the neurology of ADHD is what can open a lot of minds and, you know, the research that can enhance that learning for people because there are a lot of consistencies. And of course, like a lot of things can change your brain structure. And that's one of the things that I focus on the article in the ADHD icebergs, like trauma can change your brain structure in a way that some people can present with a lot of symptoms that are very consistent with ADHD. So it may not have, it may not be a neurodevelopmental condition for them, but they can still benefit from the approaches and the therapy, you know, and the techniques and the strategies that people with ADHD, you know, benefit from too. So understanding the neurology is a big thing. Understanding how the nervous system works, you know, it can be a game changer for every single person, for parents, for spouses, for partners. Because once you understand that, it's not only to help the other person, but it's to help yourself. You know, you're not getting caught off guard by our magnified emotions anymore. Like we have an understanding why. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Uh, I remember sitting in church when I was in when I was in school and um, the pastor said, oh, ADD, because, you know, they called it AD, ADD mm -hmm. then um, stands for uh, what was it like adult discipline disorder. And I was like, I don't think that's fair. <laughs> like, have you seen my brother in a rage and he's like biting me? Like, <laughs> but I think there's still that that like perception mm -hmm. of we'll just discipline your kids when we know mm -hmm. that doesn't work and mm -hmm. so i i hope that at some point we'll get to see more understanding around like it's not it's not necessarily like a a, a discipline thing it's a this is how my brain works thing and that can be really mm -hmm. frustrating especially mm -hmm. for small kids yeah yeah, it's one of the questions I ask in my podcast of most of my guests, which is like, well, how would you rename ADHD? Because it's such a it's such a ridiculous acronym for and and doesn't reflect our experience in so many ways. And I think sort of going mm -hmm. back to your other question about 
some of the stereotypes around ADHD. I mean, ADHD is really, in terms of the medical community, is talked about and thought about in terms of its deficits. And it's taught, and you know, and it's also taught like the ideas like, how can we fix you? How can we fix your behavior? And it's not really thought about in terms of, or even described in terms of like, okay, why is this environment harmful to your brain and how you operate that is causing you to have these behaviors? And so there's the, the emphasis is sort of on self-reliance, self-improvement, and not on the system. And it, then they wonder why we all grow up and we all have anxiety and depression and wonder what's what the hell is wrong with us. Because, you know, we've been in these systems like the school system or, you know, mm -hmm. or, you know, family systems where there are certain expectations that we can't meet. And the emphasis is, well, you just have to try harder. You just need to do this. And then emphasis is never on like, what do you need to succeed? And so I think that a lot of, you know, because it's viewed as a disorder and it's viewed in terms of its deficits, it kind of leads to those stereotypes of like, oh, ADHD is just an excuse for bad behavior. Oh, ADHD is just a lack of discipline where it's really sort of, you know, and I don't think ADHD is an excuse for poor behavior. Um, I, you know, but I also feel like, you know, until we understand that it's a matter of like, how do we fix the environment for this person? Um, you know, that the, the onus cannot be, especially on children, you know, the onus cannot be on them to fix themselves or Medicaid or, you know, all of the ways in which we're like, just, you know, be consistent, just try harder, do all those things that we heard as kids. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't remember where I was going with that, but I think, you know, mostly just the idea that like Jules said, like there's no deficit of anything with attention and hyperactivity is also a very bizarre, you know, word to have mm -hmm. in the acronym as well, because it's so like, it, it's, you know, in such, it's understood and manifested in such different ways in so many different people. And, mm -hmm. and I think to have hyperactivity in the in the acronym because many women just don't associate with that and then so they dismiss it and they're like no i are you know or people are like you did well in school you're successful and they perpetuate these stereotypes that you have to have been a hot mess your whole life in order to have this disorder and then um you know and then wonder why people with adhd are viewed as being you know such faulty humans mm-hmm yeah, it's yeah. the still kind of like that mentality of seeing, like Katie said, as a character flaw for a lot of people and something that is just a mindset issue or a mental issue. And we're ignoring the fact that this is a medical neurological condition that is actually visible. Like it's your brain is structurally different and it functions differently. So when you try too much to make this brain be a version or a shape or, you know, of that it's not like it's not going to happen i always make a mean girls reference all the time like stop trying to make neurotypical happen for mm -hmm. all of us in the neurodivergent community it's not going to happen okay so we have to find a way to be our authentic selves like i think that's the ultimate goal that i see and how i work with my clients it's not just like how can you procrastinate less it is can we procrastinate effectively can we find creative ways to utilize you know, already what we know, it's like the body doubling that Katie does in the podcast, right? Like that, in a way, has to do a little bit with the people pleasing and having that accountability, right? Is that going to get the work done? And it's like a structure that is modified to do that. So procrastinating effectively, sure. How can we learn to manage the time? You know, like get timers, get find your own ways that, you know, it's going to work for you. And the inconsistency, it's like not lowering your expectations, but it's just being flexible with yourself because 
the very first time I interviewed with Katie, I was also like, you know, I'm consistently inconsistent. And that's a thing with ADHD. Just one tool, one strategy is not going to work every single day the same way. So if it worked for me today, it may not work tomorrow. But that doesn't mean that it's not going to work at all. So it's the flexibility of it, right, that we allow ourselves to have because that helps with the perfectionism, you know, because we create that high expectation of ourselves. Like, oh, perfect, I already found this, so this is this fixed everything. <laughs> we can't think of ADHD as something that we're going to get rid of or fix. It's just learning how to improve our quality of life, learning more about it, opens doors for everyone, you know. So parents' frustrations with kiddos, it's like if you understand that the more consequences you give your kid, you know, it's not going to work. Like they don't care about consequences. They don't even care about rewards. And adults are the same. So the nervous system is like, can you find a way to maybe if they don't want to clean the room, like help them feel like maybe challenged to do that, turn that into a game. Like, oh, I bet like, you know, can we do this in 30 minutes? Like, I wonder if you can do this in 30 minutes. Like, oh, of course I can. See, so it's like when you start to modify some of that, like the education, for family members and loved ones becomes more of like an improvement in their quality of life as well. It's not just learn so you can help, but it's like learn so you can improve also your own environment and your relationships. Like, I mean, learn, right? Like learn as much as you can. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you answered uh, the question that I was going to ask, which is how, <laughs> you know, how can those without ADHD um, support those who do have it? And I think mm -hmm. that's the key there is learning and not even just in the textbook sense, but asking mm -hmm. questions of the person and mm -hmm. saying, hey, is this helpful? Is this not helpful? What can I do for you? I think mm -hmm. that makes a world of difference. And I hope that we'll get to a point where we see that more in education systems, particularly, mm -hmm. um, because I think that would be really helpful for a lot of people, but also just interpersonally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It eliminates like the, I think that powerlessness feelings from families and loved ones too. That's why I feel like it's so, it's such a support to just expand your knowledge. I know that everyone's different, right? But I, I tell so many people, if you can, if you can pick a condition where you can read a manual for like ADHD would probably be the one that it's, everyone's going to experience the same symptoms, but the way that they show those symptoms is different. Right. So, but it, that manual can work, but you just have to find a way that it will work with your loved one, with your person for you. you know, how is that going to look like for you? But at the core, it's basically the same. Right. So, just when people don't know what to do, if your kid is screaming because they have like that sensory overload and they're throwing a tantrum and like it eliminates, I was like, I don't know what to do. Right. Like the parent is like helpless and like, how do I fix this? And it's just reassuring, like, oh, this is, this happened. This is okay. Yeah. 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 Ad adjusting expectations. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I want to be mindful of your time. Um, and mm -hmm. I want to give you an opportunity to let us know how we can follow and support the work that you're currently doing. Uh, well, the best way to find us is through the website womenandadhd.com, and that is how you'll find the podcast, the weekly podcast, um, which is called Women and ADHD, and that's also how you can join the online community. 
And that's really kind of a where we come together, we share experiences and share resources. And um, those are constantly like curated and updated. And we also have, you know, um, uh, we've been doing book clubs recently, which have been really, really helpful, studying some ADHD books together. And um, yeah, that's probably the best way to start. You can also, you can find me on Instagram at uh, K-A-T-Y-W-E-B-E-R, ADHD. And I like to kind of have fun over there and goof off. But uh, yeah, the best place to start for for all of our resources is womenandadhd.com. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of educational things, but also holding space, you know, for each other and like Zoom meetings. So we can just, you know, just kind of shoot the shit and share our struggles, you know, our successes, like whatever it is. But um, now lately in the last few months, we've been doing like a monthly educational, you know, Q&A where I share information about ADHD related to a different type of topic. So the most recent one was overcoming negative self-talk, you know, and then I make myself available for office hours if people have questions about medications or just a lot of the educational pieces are also there in addition to the aspect of community and finding humor and things and memes. You cannot have ADHD without memes. That is a therapeutic <laughs> approach to me. And I take that seriously. <laughs> when you cannot identify an emotion, you can show a meme and you can be like, yep, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I know I saw something that was like, listing all of like oh like executive dysfunction and time blindness mm -hmm. and like decision paralysis and then it was like but you have can't sit still disorder <laughs> i was like yeah that checks Love out mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so i have one last very selfish question um and that is you know you talked about having a book club and i am always looking for new books to read so if you were to suggest one book surrounding oh gosh surrounding oh. around um adhd what would it be? Ooh. Uh, the workbook from the one that you previously did and the, the, the actual workbook. Um, yeah, the women, uh, the radical guide, radical guide. to mm -hmm. accept. Oh, I can't believe I don't remember. I say this all the time. Okay, it's called A Radical Guide for Women with ADHD by Sari Solden and Michelle Frank is pretty much I mean, it's it's such an incredibly transformative work uh, if you are just exploring ADHD as a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, the one I like to recommend a lot is ADHD 2.0 by mm -hmm. Hallowell and Rady, um, <laughs> which is uh, like, for me, it's a great primer. I don't know why it's called 2.0 because it's not a sequel to anything, but it's a really great primer in terms of what adult ADHD looks like. And um, it's a it's short. It's I listen to books exclusively. I don't read. Uh, and so I, you know, it was like a six hour book, which for me is like perfect. And and so mm -hmm. it was great. So those are sort of the two that I recommend the most. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Currently, um, I'm doing the one. It's called Your Brain is Not Broken by I forgot the author's name. Dr. Tamara Rosier. Tamara yeah. <laughs> Rosier, yes. <laughs> a working memory thing but yeah so that one's kind of fun because it's not like a workbook or anything but we're just kind of reflecting on some of the topics and just creating like just kind of reflections and sharing those experiences together you know and just yeah 
it was kind of like a way of find, look, learn, but have fun and find validation and closeness and all that good stuff. Yeah, I think any books that really get to the core shame, like Jules said, you know, that this is really about transforming your view of who you are and, and moving away from the like, oh my God, what is wrong with me? And moving toward the, okay, this is who I am. I'm pretty fantastic. What do I need to succeed? And mm -hmm. and I think that is really, you know, for for so many of us that is like really the bulk of our treatment which is you know understanding yourself through this new lens and and leaning into your strengths and and you know trying to remove any any of your own internalized stigma and, and shame around a lot of behaviors mm -hmm. yeah to quote my favorite dr Seuss, wife it in where you can send out <laughs> so it's being comfortable with being different and embracing that is like to be your th true authentic self without feel like you have to change who you are to fit into a society that's not wired like you. I feel like that's the goal, right? And to feel okay doing that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, what a fantastic, like positive note to end on. I love that. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you sharing so much knowledge with me. Um, and I'm just really grateful that we were able to make this happen. Yeah, awesome. thank you so much for having us. I really enjoy this kind of, you know, talk and I love it. Thank you. I know. Same here. Thanks for having us, Kelly. In June 2009, Alice DeRock was disappointed to discover that the sex toy industry was limited when it came to non-phallic sex toys for the lesbian and queer community. There were, of course, a variety of pleasure products for women, but there were not many aimed at queer women. It was this that inspired Alice to create products specifically for lesbians and queer women. Tired of dealing with catalogs and sex shops catering to heterosexual couples or straight women, Alice launched Wet For Her in 2011. Her vision was to create a convenient online queer sex shop accessible to lesbian couples around the world. Ten years later, Wet For Her is an internationally established favorite. The shop has grown to include best-selling lesbian sex toys such as strap-on dildos, double dildos, and essentials like lube and foreplay accessories. Wet For Her set out to design sex toys that were not flesh tone or intended to look realistic. All toys are made of 100% medical grade silicone, ensuring the product is phthalate free while providing a silky texture that is easy to clean and maintain. The Wet For Her finger sizing guide provides an estimate sex toy size based on the number of fingers represented. The online selection is always expanding and most recently a new line of gender affirming transmasculine products have been added to the shop. This includes an array of female-to-male packers and dildos. Wet For Her was originally created for lesbians by lesbians, but the mission and the toys don't discriminate. It is Wet For Her's goal to make this a welcoming space for queer women and the folks they love by celebrating a diverse range of bodies, genders, and orientations. So whether you identify as lesbian, bisexual, or queer, cis, trans, or non-binary, Wet For Her welcomes you. Fast and discreet shipping is offered throughout Europe, Australia, the United States, and Canada. And I have to say, I love their products. They are very pretty. Um, I have, I think, four different items from them, and I have been extremely happy with all of them. Um, they are a joy to play with and also to look at. And the suction, like the suction cups, are the best I've ever seen. I highly, highly recommend this brand. And you can check the link in this week's episode description to explore Wet For Her's beautiful collection of high-quality and queer-friendly products.